And now, standing on every promise of his word, let us turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 21 and verses 5 through 19 as we hear from God. This is God's holy word. Give it your full attention. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict." You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. If you are a believer, then you understand that this world is not your home. You're a stranger and a sojourner in this world. Your true home is in that heavenly dwelling place that the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. When Christ returns, the world as we know it will be dissolved by fire and everyone will stand before the judgment seat of God. The wicked will go into eternal punishment, but those who are in Christ will go into eternal life. They're in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, every generation since Christ's resurrection and exaltation has wondered when the world as we know it will end. The apostles thought it possible that it could end in their generation. And every generation since has wondered and even speculated if the end would come in their lifetime. In the second century, for example, the heretic Montanus claimed to be the Holy Spirit in the flesh and declared that the end of the world was at hand. Hippolytus, who was a Roman priest during the second and third centuries, proclaimed that Christ's return would come in the year 500. Moving forward to the 17th century, Sabbatai Sevi had a massive following of European Jews that worshipped him as the returned Christ. 
We've seen cult leaders, even in our own day, like David Koresh, who claimed to be the Son of God and declared the end to be imminent. What might be even more dangerous are those who speculate the end of the world by connecting today's political events to certain prophecies in the Bible. And there's a website, actually, I discovered a few years back called raptureready.com that has a rapture index calculating the nearness of the rapture based on things like the state of nuclear nations and what the current interest rates are and what the prices of gas are. And according to the last one, I'm thinking the Lord might return rather quickly. But beloved, we are sojourners in this world. We are to long for Christ's return and for the world to come, but speculation as to when that day will come is a fruitless endeavor. Jesus was not concerned to predict the end of all things present. In fact, he said that no one knew the day nor the hour, and so we should not be concerned with trying to predict it. What Jesus did predict is that many would come speculating with regard to these things. He knew that there would be false prophets that would try to mislead the people of God. He knew that others would misuse scriptural prophecies, some with good intentions, some with bad. And so out of loving care for his sheep, he explained what the time in between his first coming and his second comings would be like. And Jesus' explanation about the end times was not just informational. It was meant to instruct his followers on how to live during this time period. In this passage, we will find our, what our Savior and how our Savior wants us to live in our lives. We find that he wants us to live without fear as we endure present sufferings. For we know that our present sufferings will not compare to the glories that are to come. Christ gives us four primary exhortations in this passage. First, the first exhortation is to see that you are not led astray. The second, not to be terrified. Do not be terrified. The third is to seize the opportunity to bear witness. And fourth, to endure to the end. Now, the way Jesus forecasts the end of the world is by comparing it to the experience that his apostles would have at the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in the year A.D. 70. In other words, he painted a picture of the end of the world using the destruction of the temple as an illustration for it. And you can see it in the text, especially, it depends on, on the translation as to how clear it is. But notice in verse 7 that after Jesus describes the temple as not having one stone left upon another, his disciples ask two questions. First, they ask him, when will these things be? Which is clearly a question about when the temple would be destroyed. And then secondly, they ask, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? 
And Jesus' answer to these questions are intermingled throughout this passage precisely because what occurs with the destruction of the temple is an illustration for what the end of the world will look like. Now, Meredith Klein has put it this way, The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is not the end of the world, but it is the way the world will end. And therefore what Jesus says about the destruction of the temple is prophetic about the destruction of the present world. Now as Jesus begins to explain these events, he does so through a series of exhortations as we discussed just a moment ago. And so let's look at the first. Jesus says, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. Now his pastoral instruction is that we should be cautious discerning the false claims of deceivers. Many will come in his name pretending to be him, and that the time is at hand. And this happened in the lives of the apostles. Josephus, a Jewish historian, gives us an historical account of many messianic pretenders, both before and after Jesus, and especially surrounding the time of the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. The Jewish revolt against the Romans that led to the destruction of the temple was strongly influenced by the belief that the appearing of the Messiah was near at hand. The temptation would be strong to go after these messianic deceivers, but Jesus demands them to be discerning not being led astray by these pretenders. Now, I've already brought to light how this has even continued on throughout this church age. Many have come along either claiming to be the returning Christ themselves or that the end is at hand. But God's people are not to be deceived or confused by such false claims and by speculative forecasts. Jesus helps us to overcome this temptation by warning us that many will come deceiving. And this knowledge helps us to avoid being led astray by these false claims. Believers should not be alarmed, therefore, when these things take place because Jesus has forewarned us about them. Now, the coming of messianic posers and speculative claims about the end are things that will occur during the phase of birth pains. But they are not the only things that will occur during this phase. Jesus says, and when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. In other words, some very scary things will occur before the end of the world. Just as some very scary things happened before the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. But Jesus encourages his disciples, he encourages us today not to be terrified. 
He goes on to say that even more scary things will take place during this phase of birth pains. That it will be like birth pains throughout this age leading up to the end. But do not be afraid. He says, nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. And just as Jesus prophesied, these things were all fulfilled just prior to the temple's destruction. The nation of the Jews rose up against the nation of Rome until Rome destroyed Jerusalem and sent the nation into exile. Great earthquakes took place in Pompeii and Phrygia. There were famines leading up to this time, and Josephus again records that great signs in the heavens took place as well. And all of these signs of birth pains took place before Jerusalem was destroyed. Just as Jesus said, not one stone of the temple was left upon another. But remember that Jesus was trying to illustrate what the return of the Son of Man will be like. By speaking of the destruction of the temple. Again, the events of AD 70 were not the end of the world. But it is how the world ends. Since Jesus' day, many scary, terrifying events like these have taken place. History tells us of many nations rising against nations. Of earthquakes and famines and so on and so forth. These things are still occurring today. You see, beloved, since the first century, the world has been in labor pains. These things do not indicate that the end is upon us. For look what Jesus says in verse 9. He says, and when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Events such as these continue to occur over and over again in history because they are birth pains that must first occur. They are signs which give assurance that Christ will return, but not that he is returning immediately. Now, along these lines, we must understand that these signs are not evidences that Christ is immediately returning, but they are signs of divine judgment. Anthony Hukama, in his book, The Bible and the Future, gives clarity to how we are to view these signs. And he explains that these signs in history do not mean that people who undergo suffering or death as a result of disasters like wars, earthquakes, or famines are singled out as the special objects of God's wrath. He goes on to say, But it does mean that the signs now under consideration are manifestations of the fact that the present world is under God's curse and that the wrath of God is constantly being revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and wickedness of men. These signs, he says, are continual reminders that the judge is standing at the doors. End quote. Beloved, it is very easy to get worked up by events like these. But in all of this, 
Jesus brings ease to our anxieties with a simple exhortation. Do not be afraid. The same as he told the church in Smyrna in Revelation 2, as we heard this morning. To give an example closer to our time in history, think of the worldly terror that occurred during the Second World War. Phil Riken gives us a powerful example of how this exhortation by Christ brings God's people comfort in trying times. He tells a story about the late Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia during World War II. And Barnhouse was scheduled to preach in Belfast, Northern Ireland. He had flown there and was soon to preach there. Just before he stepped up to the pulpit, someone told him that the prime minister had just declared war on Germany. And with the fear of war at hand, the pastor of that church said to Barnhouse, I pray that God will give you something to say to the lads. This may be the last sermon that some of them will ever hear. And as Barnhouse addressed the church, he said that he had the perfect text for them. And then he began to read from God's word. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but do not be terrified. And then he began to imagine all the things that they would experience in the coming days. And as he did, he continued to repeat the exhortation from this text. The siren will sound and soldiers will mobilize. Do not be terrified. Millions of homes will be broken up. Do not be terrified. Children will be torn from their mothers and their cries will represent the sails that go up all over the world. But Jesus said, do not be terrified. Do you see how the words of our Lord spoken over 2,000 years ago are meant to give us comfort in terrifying moments, moments that would otherwise be very terrifying. Such things will occur, but they are birth pains that occur prior to a better world. These pains have been occurring for quite some time, but we have not seen that the end has come all at once. Jesus wants us to know that Terror should not be our response. But he doesn't leave us questioning what our response should be, does he? He says, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. In other words, before all of the previously mentioned things come to a close, you will be persecuted for my name's sake. If all the other things mentioned beforehand were not terrifying enough, he adds to them now persecution. Persecution that will even come at the hands of parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. 
even persecution unto death. But again, we are not to be terrified. But instead, we are to seize these opportunities to bear witness about him. This means, beloved, that these trials, and I think it helps us very much when we have this in mind going into our trials and into our tribulations that these trials are our platform. They are your pulpits to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see, you are the lights that shine for Christ in the midst of the darkness of this present world. Now, Jesus gave further instruction to settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And this instruction was fulfilled first and foremost by the disciples that he was speaking to directly in this passage. You don't have to read too far into the book of Acts to see how they were delivered up to those who opposed the church and how they responded with boldness and the power of the Spirit as they proclaimed the gospel. In the midst of stonings, imprisonments, and even death, the disciples bore witness to Christ, bringing many to a saving relationship with the Lord. The fulfillment of of this to the apostles was a result of their being inspired by the Holy Spirit. But there's a general fulfillment of this by all of Christ's followers even today. We have the finished testimony of Christ in Scripture and we are to know the pure spiritual milk of the Word being prepared to give a defense for the hope that we have in Christ when we are given opportunity to witness for him. Now some of you might not be eloquent speakers. And you may feel intimidated to speak out for Christ. But we can learn on or, or, or lean on Christ's promise in this passage. Even as Moses was able to lean upon the promise of the Lord. When instructed to go into Egypt. To deliver the people from their afflictions. You see, Moses knew that he was going to face persecution from Egypt and from Pharaoh himself. And he didn't think that he could speak well enough to proclaim the good news of God's redemption. Do you remember what he told the Lord in Exodus chapter 4? He said, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Now, how many of you can relate to the fears of Moses in this passage? Probably many of us can relate. But what did God promise him in return? He said, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute? or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall 
speak. See, Moses spoke the inspired words of God, like the apostles. But is this not, in a general way, the promise of God to all of his people? When given opportunity, that is, to be witnesses for him. We know, of course, that it is. So we are to know our Bibles and depend upon Christ's promise to give us the words of Scripture to proclaim when it is time to give a defense for our faith. When you face the trials that come during these birth pains, seize them as opportunities to bear witness for the Lord and for the glory of his gospel. Now, Jesus' last exhortation actually comes in the form of an encouragement and not a direct command. He says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Jesus had warned his disciples earlier that if the world hated him, it would hate them as well. Nevertheless, he calls them to endure. And a promise comes with this endurance. He says, not a hair of their heads would perish Now, this might seem a little bit contradictory since only two verses prior he told them that some of them would be persecuted unto death. Now he tells them that not a hair would be harmed. But what Jesus is saying here is not a promise with respect to their physical lives on earth. He is speaking of the life to come and of the resurrection. This is why he goes on to say that by their endurance, they will gain their lives. That word there, lives, in Greek is pasukos, which can be translated souls. You will gain your souls. It means the same as gaining the crown of life that we discussed this morning from Revelation 2. And so understand, O church, That the things that you must endure are merely the birth pains that must come prior to the end. Just as the agonizing pains of a mother come before the precious child that is born. So do these pains come before the glories of the life to come. The birth pains of this present age remind us that we are but sojourners on this world. It is not our home. We are looking for that heavenly country where there is no suffering and pain. But for now, we endure birth pains which are not easy. But in a way, you rejoice in them, just as a mother knows that on the other side of the birth pains comes the precious child, so too we rejoice in our sufferings knowing what awaits us at the resurrection. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. 
Beloved, as we close, I want you to know what is most assuring to us in this text. As Jesus foretells what it will be like in between the two comings, he is trying to help you see that you, the church, are simply following in his footsteps. Where Christ goes is where the church goes. He went through persecution, did he not? He was hated, wasn't he? He was betrayed by one of his own. Did not the Jewish nation, the Gentile nation of Rome, not rise up to wage war against him? And did he not say in John 2 that he himself was the temple of God, which he would raise up in three days if they were to destroy it? Did they not destroy it, so to speak, as he hung on the cross? But did he not endure through these trials of birth pains and so gain his life? Hebrews 12 verse 2 says, Let us fix our eyes upon Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This, beloved, he did for his own glory and for your salvation, that you might receive the forgiveness of sins. And so if you have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, then know that the life he calls you to is a life that he first lived himself. You see, by these trials, you are being conformed to the image of your Savior. Do you wish to be like Him? Then rejoice in your trials and in these tribulations, for they make you more like Him. It is only in Christ that you can face the tribulations of this life without being terrified. Because there is no comfort in this life apart from him, I leave you with the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. It asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And if you are a believer, your answer will be something like this. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all these things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live. For him, to him be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that you have opened up our eyes to the truth of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may we reflect that glory. May we shine forth his glory unto others. Lord, as we live our lives, may every one of our trials, may every one of our difficulties, may all of our suffering be opportunities for us to grow, O God, 
and ultimately to be faithful witnesses to you so that you may use these circumstances in our lives to point others to you, to hold them accountable to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And may your will be done in these circumstances. O Lord, it is our nature before our regeneration and which still sometimes creeps up in our lives to be grumblers and complainers. But help us to be like shining stars in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation that we might shine forth your excellencies in the world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.